Let's pray together. O oh God, you are our creator for the beauty of the earth, for all of creation that comes from your hands. We praise you this day. You are the hope of every prostitute. You are the hope of every student. You are the hope of every sinner. You are our hope. May that shine through this most dark and controversial of passages. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter Marshall, the famed Scottish preacher in the nation's capital, the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, 60 years ago used to love to tell this story about a little Scottish laddie in Aberdeen, Scotland, who whenever he was naughty would be lectured by his mother. Now, God won't like that. And when he was exceptionally unruly and disobedient, she would, she would retort, God will be angry. Usually those admonitions were sufficient, but one night the youngster was served for dessert, a dish of prunes, and he rebelled. He simply would not finish that bowl. That mother resorted to her strategy. She pulled it out. God won't like this. God doesn't like little boys to refuse to finish their prunes. The boy, he, the rebellion was too high-handed now. It could not be stopped. She pulled out her big gun. God will be angry. Still, he refused. The last two prunes, which lay in his bowl, as Peter Marshall put it, dark blue wrinkled tokens of his rebellion. Well, his mother exclaimed, you must go to bed, laddie. You have been a very naughty boy, and God is angry. So up the stairs she packed him, put him to bed. No sooner had she returned downstairs when a violent thunderstorm erupted. Lightning, the wind with fistfuls of rain hurled against the window panes. Thunder, and the mother, convinced, certain that a little boy would be trembling in fear under those covers, races back up the stairs, throws open the door, looking to the bed. He is not there. He has made his way across the room. He is standing by the window pane, his nose pressed against the glass, and she overhears him muttering, My, 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 such a fuss to make over two prunes. God will be angry. Actually, that line was not original with that flustered Scottish mother. For the mighty apostle Paul actually beat her to the punt. God, God will be angry, he wrote to the Roman Christians. Only he chose to phrase it with words that have left not a few minds untroubled. By these words, I put them on the screen. These are Paul's words. For the wrath of God, God will be angry, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men and women who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Ladies and gentlemen, what shall we do with this wrath of God? We who now live in the sense and sensibilities of this third millennial age. God doesn't get angry anymore, does he? I mean, my, my, my. Such a fuss over two prunes. Open your Bible, please, with me to the book that now is preoccupying our journey together this year, the book of Romans. Open your Bible, please, to Romans. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Last time we were in verses 16 and 17. Let's return just to get the 
bridge into where we're going today. Let's go back to verses 16 and 17. Again, I'll be in the New International Version. Whatever translation you bring, just bring a Bible. There's one if you didn't bring one in the pew rack in front of you. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writing, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. But no sooner does Paul extol the righteousness of God than we run headlong into the wrath of God over man's unrighteousness. Here we go. Verse 18. Hold on. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Now, do you notice that we put four there in brackets? The New International Version mistakenly chooses not to translate the Greek word for four. But that is a big mistake. Because the word is essential in order for us readers to realize why it is that the righteousness of God, his moral, his absolute perfection of saving love, why that righteousness is so essential. Question, why do I need God's righteousness? Answer, because I am in the eye of the storm of his wrath. I and you and the entire human race. Paul will be utterly clear. God is angry over much more than two little uneaten prunes. So let's do it together. Let's go through this passage. Let's jot a few notes down while we go through it. Seeking to come to grips with our minds and our worshiping hearts as to what God would communicate to us today. Verse 18, we'll read it all the way through now. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men and women who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, to aid us in our study today, once again, there's a brand new study guide in your worship bulletin. Would you take the study guide out, please? Our ushers are going to pass a study guide by those who raise it. Hold your hand up if you didn't get a study guide when you came in. Those of you who are watching on television right now, let me put it on the screen for you. Our web address, www.pmchurch.tv. This is our series from the book of Romans called Wine and Milk. That's our shorthand for it. You'll see it there when you click onto that site. Then go to our fourth part. This is part four entitled The Sunny Side of Wrath. Click on there and all of a sudden there will be the identical study guide that we are using today in our teaching worship journey together. Now, in, when, when it comes to the wrath of God, we need to answer three questions. Right off the bat, let's put these three questions in our study guides, go to the little squares. You have the little squares in your study guides. We need to fill in the little squares. Square number one, what is the wrath of God? All right. Square number one, what is the wrath of God? Drop down to the middle of the page. Why is the wrath of God? And finally, drop down to the bottom of the page. How is the wrath of God? All right. Let's start off with the first one. What is the wrath of God? Well, we need to re read verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men and women who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Come on, Dwight. Does God throw temper tantrums and hurl lightning bolts when he's angry? Hey, wait a minute. Time out. Time out. Didn't Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount equate being angry with my brother as the equivalent of breaking the sixth commandment, which, which would be thou shalt not kill? 
And doesn't Paul come along, the same Paul in Galatians 5, and say fits of rage are a part of a degenerate human nature. How can you have a God who in fits of rage and anger responds? Those are fair questions. We have to deal with it. Too many have skipped over and said, whoa, I can't handle it. No, there's something, there's something beneath this, this angry surface. Uh, for the next moment or two, would you jot down, I find these concise but very helpful definitions that I've come across. I want to share them with you. Jot them down, please. We'll fill them out. These are some well-known writers in the realm of theology and uh, Bible research. Number one, John A.T. Robinson. God's, what is, what is the wrath of God? God's deeply personal abhorrence. Can you spell the word abhorrence without looking? Double R. God's deeply personal abhorrence of evil. Just his rejection, pushing away of evil. Okay, here's the next one. Stephen Neal. The alternative to wrath. This is something. The alternative to wrath is not love, but, write it in, neutrality in the moral conflict. God's wrath means he is not standing on the sidelines. I'm going to be involved in this. I will plunge into the heart of this. It's not neutrality. The opposite. It means God's in the thick of it. Here's another one. John R.W. Stott. God's wrath is his holy hostility. Write it in. Hostility to evil. His refusal to condone it or come to terms with it. His just judgment. Judgment upon evil. All right. And one more. Nigren. Andre Nigren. As long as God is God. He cannot behold with indifference that his creation is destroyed and his holy will trodden underfoot. Therefore, he meets sin with his mighty and annihilating, write it in, reaction. Reaction. Oh, I saw, I, I saw a news clip. This, this is just enough to tug at any dad's heart. I saw a news clip the other day of, a fa- of an Iraqi father sobbing over the cradled body of his dead child, the hapless innocent victim of another insane terrorist bombing in that war-stricken land. Those tears, look at those tears on his face right now. They are not only the tears of mindless grief, they are surely the raging expression of a wild paternal fury over who did this to my creation. Look at that face. And then reread verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men and women who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The wrath of God. Let me just add my little definition to it here. Fill it in, please. The wrath of God. What is it? It is the raging but holy expression of a paternal. That's daddy. Of a paternal fury. Over evil, the wrath of God. What is it? Question number two, the wrath of God. Why? Why the wrath of God? Now we need to read a little bit longer. We'll pick it up again in verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men and women who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Go on now, verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without Excuse. Why the wrath of God? Because you are without excuse. That's why. Whoa. 
In the words of Thomas Schreiner, write this down, please. God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind his existence and power so that they are instinctively recognized. Did you get that? Existence and power so that they are instinctively recognized when one views the created world. Listen carefully now to every scientist on earth today, to every layman like you and me, perhaps on earth today. God declares you have no excuse for rejecting me. No excuse. I mean, how can you stare at the Mona Lisa? How can you stare at that famed work of art? Without concluding, some artist, let's say we didn't know it was Da Vinci, some artist has put himself into this, into this creation. You can't look at that painting and not know something about the artist. Fine art is always self-disclosure for the artist. How can you look at creation and not know? Not ask, did, we, did somebody put this here? Paul's point? Inescapable. You are without excuse for rejecting the capital A artist when you have gazed upon his artistry. Look, look at verse 20 again. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men and women are without excuse. Now, commentators are very quick right here to raise a caveat. And I want you to write this little this little uh, Condition down. Little, little warning here. Jot it down, please. Nature is not sufficient to know who God is, but rather that God is. That's critical. You'll never get the name of God from staring into the microscope. You'll never get it. You just get the fact there is a designer. Paul's point. He's not saying there's enough evidence in nature to get saved. He's declaring that there's enough evidence in nature to get drawn to the only one who can save you. Just enough there to say, come, 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 come. Follow that lead. You're thinking, you're thinking. Come on, brilliant, brilliant mind. Follow that. Follow, follow, follow. You will come to me. There's enough evidence. All the people on earth, Carl Sagan... The brilliant atheist, may he rest in peace, had enough evidence. People have repressed it. They have repressed, sat on it. But there's always been enough evidence. And the all-knowing mind who one day will play the video, we will know we had the evidence. We had it in our hands. Yeah. All right. By the way, this leads to John R.W. Stott. You have to fill in your study guide for this one. A very somber observation that Stott makes. Look at this. What Paul says here is that through general revelation... You know, this is a code word for these people that write these kind of books. General revelation means what you see about God in just the everyday world. Special revelation is Jesus showing up and saying, I'm God. It's the book saying this is from God, the Scriptures. Okay, in what Paul says here is that through general revelation, people can know God's power, deity and glory, not his saving grace through Christ. And that this knowledge is enough not to save them. Ooh, here it comes. But rather to condemn them because they do not live up to it. That's pretty that's pretty somber. You have had enough evidence in front of you to be drawn to God, but you refuse. You are without excuse. No excuse. Whoa. Pick it up in verse 21. 
For although they knew God, there was something in that heart that knew. Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. By the way, that's the, the, the very... The word there that's underneath is the word sophomore. A sophomore is a combination of two Greek words. Sophia, that word is right there, means wisdom and moron. And you know what that one means. A sophomore is a wise fool. No longer a freshman, but you aren't a junior yet. Paul's talking about sophomores. So, thank you for mentioning sophomores, Paul. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. I tell you what, they start at the pinnacle. They know there is this supreme being, but they go all You can't get any lower than the belly of a snake. They've gone all the way to the dust and choosing the dust for what they honor. Whoa. Human sin, write it down. Human sin, it's not in your study guide, write it in your mind. Human sin is always the failure to glorify and worship God. Therefore, all sin begins with idolatry, which is why the Ten Commandments begin with the words, You shall have no other God before me. Wow. When you and I sin, ladies and gentlemen, when we sin, it is always because we have chosen another God. By the way, it's the original sin of academia. And if not the original sin, it's the original temptation of an institution such as ours. Let me read this again. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were dark. In verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. It's the temptation. Oh, thank you, Lawrence. It's the temptation... It's the temptation and sin of forgetting from whence came all our knowledge in the first place. Now, Richard John Newhouse has written a a powerful book called Freedom from Ministry. And in this book, he touches uh, on the religious types like you and me. me. Let me put the words on the screen here. Achievement in life is always a matter of living out the gift already given. We do not need to sniff around the secular criterion of effectiveness in order to be assured that our ministries and careers are legitimated. We don't, you don't have to go, I want to be like them. No, 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 no. We and the work we have been given to do are already legitimated and justified by the grace of God. Now, New, Newhouse goes on and touches a nerve made sensitive on a campus like this one. And I need to just read these next words. I'll put them on the screen for you. Yet on the walls of many clergy offices. We had a beautiful service uh, Thursday night for John Pauline's mother. We had a memorial service for here. He's one of our professors. And we were reflecting on this. Yet on the walls of many clergy offices. And you can just read professors' offices. Are littered, yet the walls of many clergy offices are littered by diplomas and certificates from academic institutions and professional associations. It is a pitiable imitation of the doctor's office where diplomas are designed both to intimidate patients into accepting doctor's orders and to assure them that they are in good hands. I always wonder why the doctor put all his diplomas on a wall. Huh? See? 
One, and he goes on, one should not try to intimidate the people of God, especially with something that is finally so trivial as academic diplomas. Look, and I know that this is an institution that issues those diplomas. They are not the end all of life, however. And for me to have to keep reminding you what I've done might say something more about me than what I've done. Perhaps the pastor, oh, great, he would have to get everybody in. Perhaps the pastor might hang up a piece of paper certifying that he has achieved a certain level of holiness and spiritual discernment. But the institution that could issue such a certificate has yet to be found. End quote. Although we know who God is, in the words of Paul, yet we do not glorify Him. Everything we do, is that it? It all is to draw glory to the creature. Look at the creature. Look at the creature. No, Paul says, you're without excuse. Why the wrath of God? Write it down, please. Because knowing Him, we have neither glorified Him nor given thanks to Him. That's why. Okay, there are three questions. What is the wrath of God? Why is the wrath of God? And now finally, how is the wrath of God? How is it manifested? How does it manifest itself? Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans, points out a play and counterplay in this passage. Amazing. Watch this. There are three parallel descriptions of our human rebellion and rejection of God. And all three are identified by the word exchange. All right, just just jot these down, please. The first one is in verse 22. We have exchanged the glory of God for images. Write in the word images. We've exchanged the glory of God for images. What's the second one? Turn your study guide over. We have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Write that in, please. And what's the third act of rebellion? We have exchanged natural relations for the unnatural. Now, what's amazing? is that these three expressions of human rebellion are all met by three responses of God. All three, however, just one word. One word in the Greek, and you have it there in the study guide, paradidomi, which means to hand over, to give over. Jot these down. Here are the three instances now. These are the ways God responds to our rebellion. Verse 24, God gave them over to sexual impurity. Write the word impurity, please. Number two, verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Write in lusts. And verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Write in the word mind. And ladies and gentlemen, here it is. It is that act of giving over or handing over... That is the manifestation of the wrath of God in this life right now. Douglas Moo, jot this down. You will need to complete the uh, quotation. Douglas Moo writes, Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment of his crime has earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle. Write that in. The terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. End quote. Have you been following this uh, Scott Peterson case? I mean, the media won't let us forget. Scott Peterson. Let let me tell you something. Irrespective of whether whether the man is guilty of murdering his pregnant wife or not, we have seen this terrible cycle as the longer the trial goes, the more the admissions of lying, the more admissions of extramarital affairs that he conducted. The terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. Wrath of God, I let you go. I let you reap what you sow. The wrath of God. Whoa. Let's read it. I want you to catch these three cycles. Catch this, catch this. 
Uh, let's begin here. What verse? Let's begin in verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. Here it comes. There's that first one. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, here comes God's response. God gave them over. Paradidomy. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Here comes now the second act. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things, the creature rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Paul is a rabbi and he does like rabbis do in the middle of their dissertations. They'll stick in a little doxology and he's just done it. But now notice God's response to that second exchanging verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Here comes the third rebellion. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. It is the only place in Holy Scripture that lesbianism is described in Scripture. You just read it. But it's not only women. Verse 27, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, here comes his response now. He gave them over, number three, to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul is making a profound point here, and it is not so much about homosexuality as it is about the nature of God's wrath. Jot this down, please. In the words of Ernst Kassman, would you, would you, this, this is profound right here. His one line in your study guide, Paul paradoxically reverses the cause and consequence. Watch this. Moral perversion is the result, write it in, is the result of God's wrath, not the reason for it. End quote. Some Christians today have mistakenly declared that homosexuality incurs the punishing wrath of God. And they conclude, look at the AIDS scourge, that is the judgment of God upon homosexuals. Wrong! Paul cries out, wrong, wrong, wrong. Unnatural acted out homosexual behavior is not the reason for God's wrath. It is the result of God's wrath. And how does the wrath of a holy, righteous, loving God, how does it manifest itself? Folks, this is what's happening. God hands you over. He gives me over to reap the natural consequences of my unnatural glorifying the creature rather than the creator. God says, all right, boy, you have at it. The terrible cycle now begins. I will not interfere with your freedom of choice. You may now go and reap what you have sown. The wrath of God. In the words of Richard Hayes, God's wrath, put it on the screen for you, God's wrath against His fallen creatures takes the ironic form of allowing them the freedom to have their own way, abandoning them to their own devices. God's judgment allows the irony of sin to play itself out. The creature's original impulse towards self-glorification ends in self-destruction. End quote. God simply says, I'm going to let your behavior destroy yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, please, please get this clear. God's wrath is not getting you after you've sinned. It's letting you be gotten after you've sinned. It is not about God getting you. 
But it is about God letting your sin get you. His wrath. And you say, hey, come on, Pastor. Then why, why does Paul come down with such in, unmitigated apostolic force against homosexual behavior? And by the way, I'm glad you made that distinction. It's homosexual behavior, not homosexuals. He's not dealing with human beings. He's dealing with behavior. Homosexual behavior. Again, Richard Hayes, you'll need to fill this in in your study guide. In Romans 1, Paul portrays homosexual behavior as a sacrament, so to speak, of the anti-religion of human beings who refuse to honor God as creator. When human beings engage in homosexual activity, they enact an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual reality. The rejection of the creator's design. Now, you're going to have to fill this in. Homosexual activity will not incur, write it in, it will not incur God's punishment. It is its own punishment and anti-reward. End quote. Say, so why does Paul choose homosexuality? Because it's prima facie, it's exhibit A, evidence of the creature rejecting the Creator's design. It's the, it's the most compelling of evidences of the creature saying, no, I'll do it my way. However, and here, here, here's this huge however, homosexual acts are not the specially reprehensible sins. They are not the worst sins. Paul now will close with a vice list, which is what literature did in his time, a list of vices, and he will not even mention sexual sin at all. Watch this. Pick it up in verse 29. Verse 29 they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips and slanderers. Verse 30, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Finally, verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I want to tell you something. That vice list is so comprehensive. Everybody in this church just got drawn in. We're all there. And by the way, the New Revised Standard Version translates that very last line. They not only do these things, but they, and here's the NRSP's word, they applaud those who do. And the moment I read that the first time in the NRSV, I thought of Jay Leno and David Letterman and Conan O'Brien, our late night comedians who laughed their way through this entire vice List And as they joke and joke and joke, what are the audiences doing? They are all roaring their applause and approval. Bring it on. I want to tell you something. When you watch and laugh, when you rent and watch and laugh, when you pay and watch and laugh. You are giving personal approval and applause to that vice list. I, I tell you what, I would think twice if I were you. I would think twice 
about what I spent my time and money watching and listening and mimicking, I'd think twice. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things themselves, but they also approve of those who practice them. They applaud a vice list so comprehensive that it draws all of us under the wrath of God. Then how, how can we possibly be saved, you and I? We're all indicted. I want to end with this observation. The Greek word for he gave them over. That Greek word paradinomy is used only two other times. In closing, let me share this with you. Two other times in the book of Romans. You're going to have to jot the numbers down. Let's look at the first one. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Write that in, please. And here's the verse. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. Delivered over. That's it. Being handed over. That's the wrath of God taking place. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our salvation. Our justification. One more text in the entire book of Romans that uses paradinomy. Romans 8.32. Look at this. God who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? God who gave Him up, He turned Him over. Calvary, ladies and gentlemen, is the portrait of divine wrath. When God gives Himself over to the consequences of my sins, so that in the end, I will not have to bear those consequences myself. That's the wrath of God. And God pays it Himself. Faces it Himself. At the cross of Christ. The wrath of God fell on Jesus. Yeah, did, you, did you hear about this? I, a meteorological first. Uncanny, uncanny. Just last week, a week ago. Did you hear that the eye of Hurricane Jean struck the Florida coastline within a few yards of where the eye of Hurricane Francis had struck a few days earlier. They suffered a direct hit two times in a row. Ladies and gentlemen, mark it down. The victim on the center cross was stricken by a direct hit of divine wrath. Not once, not twice, not thrice. But he was struck again and again. The eye of the storm of divine wrath hovered in those three black hours over that center cross as he was stricken for the human race. For that prostitute that Solis met in jail. Stricken for her sin. Stricken for my sin. Stricken for your sin. Divine, those, those bolts of divine wrath hurled at the center cross. And because of it, ladies and gentlemen, he died. Died of a broken heart. But, hallelujah, he rose again. And because he rose again, you and I have nothing to fear of divine wrath. We have nothing to fear at all. Why? Because the wrath of God upon the Son of God saves the child of God. That's why. I tell you what, you hand it over. Do the same word back to God. You hand yourself over to God. Hand yourself over to the God who handed Himself over to save you. Is there anything holding you back from handing yourself over to God? What would you let hold you back? What could hold you back? Hand yourself over. 
hand yourself over. There is nothing in this life worth holding this sinner back. What do you say? Hmm? How about it? How about it? You want to stand before Him right now? And in standing before Him, say to Him, Oh God, this vice list, you were stepping all over my toes, but Holy Father, I want to place, I want to hand myself over into those nail-scarred hands. You took the divine wrath, Jesus. I hand myself over to You. How many want to send that prayer to heaven right now? You want to stand to your feet. If you want to send that prayer, stand to your feet. Your mind knows what you're saying when you stand to your feet. Hand it over. Whatever's been holding you back, hand it over. Hand it over. Don't, my friend, my friend, the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin, don't be stuck in that cycle. It'll kill you. It'll destroy you in the end. Self-inflicted, it will destroy you. Hand yourself over. Keep yourself handed over. Oh, Father, Father, Father. The bolts of divine wrath were hurled on that center cross. You handed Jesus over. You delivered Him up. Divine wrath for every sin represented before you now as we stand. For every sinner on this planet. Oh, Father, Jesus died for our sins that He might save us. And so we stand. Please know our hearts, dear God. We hand over our lives to You just as we are. We hand it over to You. Let His righteousness and His salvation accompany us every step of the journey, we pray. And now may the Father who gave His Son and the Son who gave His life and the Spirit who brings both to us journey with us as we walk on the sunny side of God's wrath. Let all the people say, Amen.